you would turn in your Bibles to the book of 2 Corinthians. We are going to be looking at a middle section of the 11th chapter this morning, specifically verses 7 through 15. Last week we looked at the first six verses of chapter 7, and Paul told us about the problem of a false gospel, how a false gospel harms us. Now this morning he's going to turn to the purveyors of that false gospel, to false shepherds. And so if you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word, for the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative, and the word of the Lord is completely sufficient. 2 Corinthians 11, beginning at verse 7. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted, because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, their end will correspond to their deeds. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. O Lord our God, we ask this morning that you would open up your word to us. That you would speak to us by your spirit. That in your word, we might know more of who you are, of what you have done, and what duty you require of us. Be with us, O Lord, and bless us through your word. This we ask in Christ's mighty name. And all God's people said, Amen. Last week, as I said, we looked at the problem of a false gospel. We saw that a false gospel is not loving, that it is deceptive, and that it is fundamentally not true. And now, as Paul goes on in his letter, he reminds us that false gospels do not come out of nowhere. They actually come from false shepherds and teachers in the church. And so if we are to know the blessing of the true gospel and to avoid falsehood, 
We must be able to spot false gospels, shepherds, and teachers. And so Paul now begins to compare himself with these false super apostles, so-called, and gives us a guideline for determining who is a true and who is a false shepherd. He gives us the characteristics of one and then the characteristics of the other. He first tells us how to spot a true shepherd. And a true shepherd is marked by three things. Humility, truth, and love. And then he tells us the marks of a false shepherd. And it should not surprise us that they are the opposite. A false shepherd is marked by pride, deceit, and abuse. So let's begin then by looking at Paul's description of a true shepherd. Now we must remember that Paul is dealing with a controversy here. We saw this last time. And that affects what we read and what we have to interpret. You may recall that chapter 11 is a bit like listening to one end of a telephone conversation. You've done that before, right? Someone in the room with you is having a conversation and you can hear clearly what they're saying, but you have to sort of fill in the gaps with what's being said on the other end of the phone. That's what we have here with the Apostle Paul. He's speaking very clearly to us, but we don't have all of the details about what his opponents are pushing. We do know that Paul is being attacked. And that he is defending himself and his ministry. And in turn, by being direct here, he is describing his opponents, their characteristics, and their methods. You have to imagine Paul's opponents sitting in the congregation, listening to this letter being read, knowing it's about them and the things they are claiming. So Paul begins in verse 7 with the first characteristic of a true shepherd, and that is humility. He writes, Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted? Because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? He makes here what seems to be a very odd statement. He asks them, Am I sinning because I humbled myself? Am I sinning because I didn't charge you money? To preach the gospel to you? Is it a sin for me to be humble? Now, we don't expect either of these things to be called sin. And that actually is Paul's point here. His opponents had managed to attack Paul for not charging for his teaching. If you can imagine that, that was supposed to be a problem with Paul. That was something he was wrong about, is that he didn't charge others for his teaching. Now this picks up Paul's comments from last week in verse 6, where Paul says that he is unskilled in speaking. And the root of that word unskilled means an amateur, non-professional. Paul is declaring that yes, if professional speakers go around and rake in gigantic speaking fees, you're right, I am an unprofessional. You don't need to see how much I have charged. And they said that that meant that Paul was an amateur, that he wasn't worthy of speaking. 
He wasn't worthy of listening to. They said he was a lousy speaker. No help at all. It wasn't worthwhile to listen to him preach. They might have said things like, I hate listening to Paul preach. He's so boring. And all he really does is repeat the scriptures. There's, there's no zip to his speech. There's no flow. There's no flourish. He hasn't studied any of the rhetorical techniques. Who does he think he is? And they said, that's the reason he can't charge you. He doesn't bring anything to the table. It's as if Paul's lack of charging was his own assessment of his teaching. That he knew it was worthless, and so therefore he didn't charge them. And this, of course, contrasted with Paul's opponents who charged large fees. You have seen this in, in our day and age. You see reports of someone getting $100,000, $200,000, $300,000 for a speech. And we know it's because the group paying that person assumes that they're getting that much worth of benefit. But if they were to bring someone in for, I don't know, $10,50, you would think it wasn't even worth going to. That was the argument of Paul's opponents. But Paul's basic principle that he's laying out here in verse 7 is that his ministry was not about him. He was willing to humble himself. And what he means by that is he was willing to lose prestige. He was willing to lose status. That's what the word humble here means. He was willing to lose that because his concern was for the congregation, not himself. He wanted them to be exalted. He wanted them to be lifted up. He wanted them to be blessed. And this was Jesus' principle. Over and over again in the Gospels, Jesus said, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Paul's focus was not on himself and his needs, but on others. He was a humble man. Paul also was keenly aware that this gospel was not his gospel. It was, as he, says, he writes in verse 7, God's gospel. That means it belonged to God. It originated with God. It was not something that Paul made up to make people feel better. He was speaking the truth as God had given it to him. You know, there are many people here in our day and age who write things that they make up just to, in the hope that it will make you feel better. They'll come alongside you and give you some platitudes. Bookstores are filled with shelves of self-help books where people make up theories. The idea being to encourage you a bit to make you smile, to make you feel better. But there's no lasting change in that. Paul knew that the gospel of the Lord God brought about lasting, significant, permanent change. And Paul refused to charge for this. It was something that he had received as a gift. And so he would provide it as a gift to others. Freely you have been given. Freely you should give, Paul believed. That's what the word free of charge here means. It means a gift. And this was Paul's pattern 
of his ministry. <coughs> that is, he would not charge those among whom he was ministering the gospel. He would work to support himself. He would do this even when it was painful. Paul reminds us here in verse 9 that when I was with you and I was in need, I did not burden anyone. The words here, in need, mean in destitution, in poverty. The idea here is Paul is ministering in Corinth and he doesn't know where his next meal is coming from. But he still won't charge for the gospel on principle. He doesn't know if he's going to have a roof over his head tomorrow, but he will not violate the principle that the gospel is God's free gift. He did this in Ephesus for years. He worked to support himself. He did this at Thessalonica. And in both places, Paul tells us that he labored hard day and night so as not to be a burden on others. But Paul's pattern, his established pattern, would be that once he moved from a place that he had brought the gospel and it was established as a church and they could minister to each other, that Paul took support from that church in further places. And he did this as much to involve them in the work of mission as to support himself. And he describes that here in verse 9, verses 8 and 9. He says, I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. He says, the brothers came down from Macedonia and they met my need. Now, verse 8 seems, again, a bit odd. Paul robbed other churches. And I don't have in your mind a picture of Paul with a sword walking back to one of his churches and saying, hey, give it up now. Let's go. He didn't threaten them. But what he did was he received support from them in order to bring the gospel to new places. And this word robbed could be translated in a different way that's even more distasteful. You could translate this word as pillaged, as in an army pillaging a city. And what Paul is doing here is he's describing his campaign because that's how you conducted ancient warfare. You took your army to a city, and after you had captured it, you pillaged it. You took everything of value so that you could go on to the next city. And when you got to the next city, guess what? You did it all over again, from city to city. That's how you conducted a campaign. But what Paul is describing here is not a campaign of army or of wealth. He's describing the campaign of the gospel. And so he gets his support from the places that he has founded, the churches that are successful, where Jesus is preached and lifted up. He doesn't mean this in the sense that he compels people to give to him. The giving was completely voluntary. But it does show the value of Paul's teaching. Because churches were willing to support Paul even when he went beyond their region. They were willing to support Paul even when it didn't directly benefit them. They were continuing this principle of humility, lifting others up, benefiting them. Now, this was not the only way in which Paul was humble. But it is an important and practical way to be pointed out. 
It was also the area in which Paul was being accused by his opponents. And so this shows us that a true shepherd is humble, putting the flock first and depending on God. That brings us to the second characteristic of a true shepherd, truth. Now this makes perfect sense because if a true shepherd brings God's gospel, not his own wisdom, he must be a speaker of truth. And that's what Paul said that he did. He brought the gospel of God, and he's very emphatic about it. He preached God's gospel. We might see, say he gospeled the gospel. And this is the only way Paul knew that you could benefit others. You tell them the truth so that they don't fall for lies. You want them to understand reality, to make wise decisions. After all, how could the Corinthians know how to live if they didn't know the truth? That had been Paul's way from the very beginning. After all, the Corinthians had been living a lie before Paul came. They didn't know God. They didn't know Jesus. They didn't know they were sinners and they were in need of a Savior. <coughs> Paul changed all that when he brought the truth to them. And he expresses this in verse 10. He says, as the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced. The true shepherd is true to Jesus. The truth comes from Jesus. And that is what the shepherd brings. He doesn't try to change it. He doesn't try to add to it. He doesn't try to replace it. And, and notice how deeply the truth was in Paul. He does it right. I spoke the truth. Although that was true. He does it right. I know or I think about the truth. That was correct also. But he writes, the truth is in me. That means that a true shepherd is known for the truth. He knows it. He teaches it. He lives it. What you see on the outside is what is on the inside. You could look at Paul's life and see that it lined up perfectly with what he taught. As you listen to teachers, do you look to see that their lives are true? Not perfect, but in line with their teaching? It should never be, do as I say, but not as I do. The truth must be something that we not only speak, but that we live. Let me ask you a more pointed question. Does your life line up? Because the greatest barrier to the gospel message is an untruthful life. Parents have a great desire to see their children walk with the Lord. And I would encourage you to read the Bible to your children, to catechize your children, to instruct your children. But that will all be for naught if you don't live the truth. 
You must live what you say you believe. If your children hear you say one thing and they see you think that Jesus is not a big deal to you, the church doesn't really matter for you, that your life hasn't been changed by the gospel, that will not take root in their lives. It's true also when we witness in our neighborhoods. You must watch yourself. It is not enough to simply speak the truth. We must live the truth. And now there is a third characteristic of a true shepherd. Love. Paul gives us this in a very short and direct fashion. And he actually uses this characteristic as evidence of the other two. Why did I humble myself, Paul asks. Why will I not be silenced from speaking the truth? Well, it's because I love you, Paul says. That's why I do these things. And now he actually writes about this ironically. Look with me at verse 11. Why do I do this? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. Now, Paul is writing this ironically. He's using sarcasm. We've seen this before. He says, this is the accusation that has come against me. His opponents have said, Paul doesn't care for you. If Paul cared for you, then he would be charging you boatloads of money. If Paul cared for you, then he would tell you things that you want to hear and wouldn't tell you things that he says are true, but are uncomfortable. But Paul says, I love you. And the evidence of that love is that I sacrifice for you. I humble myself for you. I bring the truth to you and not my own words. Now, it may sound crazy that they could have accused Paul of being unloving because he didn't charge for his teaching. But it actually fits within the Greek culture. In Greek culture, the more valuable the teaching was, the more you charged for it. And so, because Paul charged nothing, they said he was giving them worthless teaching. He was wasting their time. He didn't love them at all. And they said, look, we're the ones who care. If you wonder how much we care, just look at the bill we sent you. It's gigantic. Now, this may be confusing, but let me put it this way. Have you ever received a low quote for work around your house and wondered, is this quote so low because this guy doesn't know what he's doing? Is he going to use cheap or inferior parts and I'm going to have a problem a year from now? We had this incident about a month ago. We had a leak in one of our water heaters. And when it was inspected, we found out we needed not only one, but two water heaters. Now you can imagine how concerning that was to me. And when I got the estimate, I almost fell over from sticker shock. And so we did what I think anyone would do in our circumstance. We got another three or four quotes from some other plumbers. And one plumber was less than half of the cost of the original estimate. And immediately my thought would be, well, are we going to get a good job here? Does this plumber know what he's doing? Because it's pretty cheap. But the difference is, we had the personal testimony of people we knew who had used this plumber and said, that's just what he charges. He does excellent work. He uses good parts. You won't have to worry about it. 
And that made us feel a good deal more comfortable with the situation. It's ironic, but sometimes we think something must be better if it costs more. But that's not true, especially with the gospel. Because the gospel is God's free gift. And its value is infinite. The gospel does not depend on what people charge for it. And so Paul answers his own question simply and directly. He turns to the only court of appeal, the greatest judge of character and motive, God himself. He says, God knows. God knows my heart. He knows that I love you. Paul is willing to be judged by God for his love. The God who is the perfect judge, who knows everything. Think about that. Think about how secure in his love for the Corinthians Paul is that he's willing to stand before the Lord God Almighty and have him be the judge. And if this is the case, then if the Corinthians will examine their own hearts, They'll come to the same conclusions that Paul does indeed love them. We've seen this throughout this letter. Paul's love for them, his willingness to suffer for them. A true shepherd is about so much more than the content of what he says. He's motivated by love. If there isn't love, you must beware. That brings us then to the characteristics of a false shepherd. Now, it should not surprise us that they are the opposite of true shepherds. Humility and pride, truth and deceit, love and abuse. And in one sense, we need to work a little bit harder to determine these characteristics. Because Paul does not give us names. He doesn't give us specifics with examples. In verse 12, Paul tells us that he will continue as he has gone on doing. What I am doing, I will continue to do, he says, in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim their boasted mission is on the same terms as ours. Now, what does this mean? Paul is referring to his ministering at no charge. Now, why is he doing this? He tells us so that he can undermine his opponents. Paul wants to leave them no leg to stand on. Because their pattern was to tell the Corinthians that they owed them. Their greed was tied to an authoritarianism. They made sure that the church knew how great they were and how lucky the church was to have them. They were so lucky they should feel privileged to pay top dollar for their teaching. Now, Paul didn't want to be a burden, but his opponents didn't mind at all. They would remind the Corinthians that they were worth it, that they were the best in the business. But these are the same men who burst on the scene and immediately began puffing themselves up with pride. They claimed they were the equals. No, no, they were better than Paul, the apostle. And yet, they had not built anything. They had not established any church. They had not brought converts to Christ. But 
they were the ones who wanted to benefit from this relationship. They were more concerned about themselves than others. That is the first sign of a false shepherd. When someone's ministry is to tell you how great they are, beware. When someone says that they are above questioning, do not question me ever, beware. Because false shepherds are driven by pride. The second mark of a false shepherd is deception. And Paul is very direct about this. It's true that Paul doesn't name names, but don't be confused. The church knew who he was talking about. They were likely sitting in the very front row of the congregation of Corinth. And while he doesn't name them, he doesn't hold back at all. Look with me at verse 13. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. We might say that Paul gives it to them with both barrels here. He says, you claim to be apostles, but you're false. Remember last week when we saw that these men came to Corinth, they were never sent by God, and that that was a difference, that they weren't true apostles? That's what Paul points out here. Paul writes that even though they think they are super apostles, as we saw in verse 5, they're really false apostles. They are deceptive. They are unreal. They are not genuine. Now, you know how important it is to have the genuine article, don't you? Have you ever had something that is not genuine, that's a knockoff? Maybe it was when you were younger and naive and were traveling to a big city, and someone wanted to sell you a Rolex. And you got excited because you didn't ever think you could afford a Rolex, but you can afford this watch. And it's a Rolex. Look, it says it right on the watch. R-O-L-E-X. It must be a Rolex. And then you bring it home. And after about a month, it stops keeping time accurately. And, and you notice when you take it off your wrist, it leaves like a residue on your wrist. And after about six months, it doesn't really work at all. And you realize that it's not really Rolex, R-O-L-E-X, they may as well have spelt it R-O-L-A-X. Because it's a knockoff. It's a counterfeit. It doesn't do you any good. That's what Paul's saying here. That we can be deceived into thinking something is real and true. But that doesn't change the reality of it that it is false. Paul says they are deceitful workers. And this phrase must have really cut to the quick. Because the word worker here really means gospel workers. And so what Paul is calling them is fake gospel workers. They're fakes. They disguise themselves as apostles. Now, this word disguise means to transform. It's the same word that Paul uses in Philippians chapter 3, where he describes Christ transforming our body to be like his glorious body at the resurrection. But here, this is not an active verb. It's not someone transforming something else. It is a passive verb. They transform themselves. 
That is, they disguise themselves. They hide the reality of who they are. False shepherds know that they cannot get what they want by telling the truth. So you know what? They don't. They lie. They deceive. They set out to deceive, to trick, and to lie. We see this over and over again. It happened at the very beginning of the church. In Acts chapter 15, we read the account of some persons who went out and unsettled believers about the gospel by deceiving them. It happened in the church in Rome. At the end of that great letter to the church at Rome in chapter 16, Paul writes that there are some who came in and created obstacles contrary to the doctrine you have been taught. They don't serve Christ, he wrote but their own appetites, and they deceive others. Peter saw this as well. He talked about false prophets who deceived the church in 2 Peter 2. And it should not surprise us that this is the case, because that is Satan's tactic himself. That's what Paul tells us in verses 14 and 15. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And so it is no surprise, it's not a big thing, it's not hard to contemplate, Paul is saying, if his servants also disguise themselves because they're following in the path of the enemy of your soul. We think that we will easily be able to spot Satan and his attacks. But the truth is, it's not as easy as we imagine. Satan does not come at us in an obvious way. He often does not publicly attack the church. Instead, he joins the church to undermine it from within. <coughs> he spreads lies and deception within the church. The great danger to the church today is not secularism or atheism. It is being weakened by false teaching. It is the abandonment of the teaching of the word of God. And this is why you must stay close to Jesus. This is why you must read and study your Bible. Do not be deceived. Do not be taken in by those who will take you away from God's word. False shepherds deceive. The final thing that we will see this morning briefly is that false shepherds are harmful. They abuse. This, of course, is the opposite of a true shepherd. We saw that a true shepherd loves the sheep. And this also is a direct result of the first two characteristics of a false shepherd. When someone cares only about themselves... They're prideful. When someone is willing to deceive others to get what they want, the result is that people get hurt. That's what Paul's been saying this entire letter. He's been reminding them and us that false shepherds don't care about people. They don't serve the gospel. They only serve themselves. And the result is, instead of lifting up God's people, as Paul did, they crush them. 
They use them. Now, Paul will be explicit about this a bit later. In verse 20, he says, they will make you their slaves. They will devour you. And in a very vivid example, he says, they will smack you in the face. Does that sound like love? Of course not. It's the way that we would describe an abusive relationship. And how would you advise someone in an abusive relationship? You would tell them to get out. To find someone who loves you and will care for you. That's what Paul is telling you now. You cannot put up with false shepherds. They will hurt you. False shepherds are a real problem for the church. They care only about themselves and are willing to lie and deceive to get what they want. They don't care who they hurt as long as their needs are met. This is a real danger for the church in our day. Satan uses deception far more effectively than a direct attack. This was true from the very first day in the garden. He didn't tell Eve, there's no God. God doesn't speak. He said, did God really say that? He twisted God's words and tried to deceive our first father and mother. We need to be discerning. We need to judge all things by God's word. Not by what we feel. Not by what is popular. But by the word of God. And we need to be true shepherds to our families, our friends, our neighbors. We need to be humble, true, and loving. That is what Jesus has called us to. Really, he's called us to be like him. Are you prepared for that? Because that is how the victory will be won. We must follow Jesus. Let's pray.